0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Tonight, we'll go back in time to season's pass, when 22 men graced the record fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score that would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the Gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of Gridiron Greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network. And we're live from the Southport, North Carolina home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150 plus years of memorabilia, and you can find us on the web app. Greats it is at this time I'd like to introduce my special guest co-host and guest for tonight's show. He's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia historian specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular the early NFL history, especially the 1925 Pottstown has one of the most advanced collections of football cards and memorabilia from 1888 to 1988 in the country. And at this time, I'd like to welcome our special guest, co-host, and host, and guest, Mr. Jeff Payne, for the show this evening. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Bob. Good to good to hear from you. Happy to be here. I thank you for filling in some big shoes. Of Mr. Squires, our regular co-host, who was on vacation this week. But in any event, I'm Ollie. glad you could fill in. We got plenty of stuff to talk about, and we're going to cut to the chase immediately and look at. We're going to get a few updates on your incredible collection, <clears throat> cards and memorabilia. Spanning a hundred-year period from 1888 to 1988, I was very fortunate several years ago when uh, we could really travel very freely to attend one of your weekends down there, hitting a show in Pennsylvania, and then having and watching a game on Sunday and looking at your collection. So we've got a few few areas to go over, a few areas to talk about. I'm going to lead off by talking and and asking about what's new in your collection. And I understand you got something uh, you've been waiting for for a long time and an incredible pickup, rare pickup for your collection. I'll hand it off to you. Yes, thanks, Bob. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very
2: excited. I did pick up um, a Red Grange card that I've been trying to get for a long time. But what's interesting, before I talk about that card, and when I got this card the other day, just got it this past week, I was pulling out some of my Grange cards and just looking at stuff and just, you know, enjoying this new edition. And it struck me how many football cards Red Grange has. You know, we always talk about pre-war. You know, hardly any of the Hall of Famers have a card maybe one if they're lucky, and I'm not even counting, you know, matchbooks, sweeties, you know, box cuts, just straight right. real football cards. Greg Grange, I counted them up. So I counted, and I, I could be off a few. He has 47 cards from his playing Um, uh, which not only is, of course, by far the most number of cards for any pre-war player, But I would actually challenge anybody to come up with another player in the vintage era, and I'm calling that 1888 to 1988, that has as many football cards as Red Grange has. It never struck me before what a Mm -hmm. marketing juggernaut he was and his manager was. And in an era when there's no football cards, hardly, he has 47. Right. Uh, that is incredible now you could argue some of those are movie star cards so you know are those legitimately football cards well just take those out then right if you take those out he still has 19 cards from his playing days and i was trying to think of any nfl player um through the entire you know vintage period that would have 19 cards and i'm coming up Pretty blank. I'm thinking maybe Unitas might be up there. It's got to be somebody that played a long time, and it's got to be somebody that right. was a star enough that Tops or you know Philly or Fleer or somebody would have you know made sure they had cards nearly every year. And boy, I'm I'm coming up empty, which is really surprising well, to me,
1: right? Isn't that strange? Off 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 the top of my head, I always use 25 as the cut. First, I thought. Range had, not counting the movie cards, I thought he had around 25 cards, but I, I will mm-hmm. uh, say you're much more accurate than me looking at 19 cards on that. Number one. Number two, again, remembering, what like you're saying, and I go to the insert era of the 60s where a star player may have had one or two more additional posters or actual... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, card, you know, the uh, glossy card or whatever, or a pin-up uh, poster so on and so forth, which is technically not a card. So you're right. Yeah. I, I always said it was like 20 to 25 cards would be the most mm-hmm. any star player from that time would actually have. And never mind all the minor stars um, who, again, if they had a card in the NFL, uh, the regular top series, and if their team Produced a police set. They would have two cards for the year, and that's it. Remember, and you're you're well aware. Flair team in action, seventy-six to eighty-eight, was all generic yep. cards, and the players were not named on them. But, but obviously, you could tell if there was a Peyton or a Starr Star or whatever. But in any event, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, Red Red Grange was a popular player. He was a very marketable player, and he did get his due back then, uh, as far as the amount of cards in. Uh, print for him, and again adding the movies, uh, the movie cards, uh, almost fifty cards. That's incredible. It yeah. that really is. Yeah, and that's just and from that's his playing me- days. I I
2: kind of cut it off when he retired. I mean, there's a bunch of cards after that, right? I'm not counting his top sold American card. You know, Mayfair Candy yep. came out later. I'm not counting. Wheaties, cuts, ink blotters, you know, RPPCs. I mean, boy, you start adding all that into it, and his number's going to skyrocket.
1: Right, right, right. So it's it's very interesting to think about that in comparison to the overproduction of a, of a player's card today, where you could see in just one year, one player has 50 cards from all the different uh, sets, subsets, um... Inserts, so on and so forth. That's 50 from one season. This is one of the greatest players who ever walked the gridiron. He doesn't even have 50 cards. and right. you know that's something you got to you got to put in perspective. But it's uh, it's really amazing, really amazing to think about. And uh, again, I always I always thought 25, 20 to 25.
0: That was mm-hmm. always
1: my my um, cut for any player of. You're right, the vintage area. Vintage era, until we got into the explosion in 1989, and, and to this day, where there's just so many sets and so many cards of one player, it's just it's just difficult to really uh, to try to collect to say the least. That's good. That's a that's a great observation on your part, looking at that view again. And I will assume, with your big pickup, you have all those. You have all 47, correct?
0: <sighs>
2: well. Uh, I'm missing one, and it's it's a movie card, so it's not one of his you know football ones. But I'm okay. missing right. one.
1: Okay, <clears throat> so okay. I'll I'll keep right.
2: looking for that. But I'm I'm close. 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 Yeah. Okay. So back to the <laughs> pickup. So one of the ones I've been chasing now for over a decade is his 1929-30 Rogers Pete. Card, So you know, I don't know how many out in the audience know these cards, but in the late 20s, 1929, um, a men's clothier um, chain called Rogers Pete had a premium redemption promo that they ran. They created a multi-sport set of 48 cards that they distributed to children or kids who visited the store. Obviously, a a way to get their parents to come in and buy some stuff. And the way it worked Mm -hmm. was if if you came into the store, you would get a group of four cards. Kids would get a group of four cards, and they also were given albums that they could, you know, paste these cards into. And if you could complete the album with 48 cards, all, all 48 of the cards, there were prizes that you could get from Rogers Pete. And so, mm-hmm. you know, this set um, has, a, has a red Grange in it. It actually has four football players in it, um, you know, including Ken Strong, another Hall of Famer, Chris Cagle, who was a multi-time All-American at Army, and a, and a multi-All-American um, Ed Whitmer from Princeton, with a four football, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of baseball and other sports. there but they're very hard cards to find um you know i I, i'm fortunate i got all four of them now Uh, but if you look at the population reports of course these are graded there's raw ones out there we don't know about but um almost every card in this set has a population um graded population well under 10 right
1: a lot Mm -hmm. of them are five
2: or the grange is three there's only three of them that at least i know of that exist Mm -hmm. and so it's not Mm -hmm. the kind of card you just you know you find laying out there on ebay (laughs) let's put it that way
1: yeah exactly Um, exactly and what do you you know we we talked about this before and and again your expert opinion on it why are there so why are there so few of these found and again, I always estimated if, if there's twelve of each, that's a lot. But what's your what's your viewpoint viewpoint of the sh- uh, why they're so difficult to find and, and literally impossible to find in the market?
2: Yeah, I think it's a number of things. So first, I think you got to look at the year these came out. And I don't know when in 1929 the promotion started. We do know it went into 1930. But, you know, that's right when the market crashed and we entered the Great Depression. I'm guessing that not a lot of people were going to Rogers Pete and buying new clothes there for a while, like (laughs) maybe for a decade. And so I'm I'm kind of wondering how many of these cards actually got out into circulation, how many people were actually coming into these stores once the, you know, the market crashed. So I think that's one. Two is, you know, some of these are so rare um, there, there are certainly ones that are, are there's you know significantly more out there. Significant means ten, you know, than others. It makes you wonder if for some of the stars they held back those cards, you know, to to kind of control right. how many albums could be you know completed. You know, they obviously didn't want to give a prize out to everybody, and so it's yep. a chance that some of these were short printed. And I would think Grange would definitely be a candidate for a short print, right? You'd want the kids coming back looking for the Grange card. Um, I think right. that might be part of it too. And then, then obviously when the when the um, albums were redeemed, they were probably destroyed. You wouldn't want somebody to be able to redeem them multiple times. So they probably destroyed any right. that got turned in. And then you've got the paper drives, right, of, of the war later on, after, yep. you know, a, a decade later. I think all those contribute to, you know, a lot of the reasons why the, the sets from that era are so, you know, so scarce and the cards are so scarce. And that's my thought on it. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a two-folded issue. I do I do agree with you 100% on the depression hitting uh, sales for Roger P may have collapsed completely. Um, and the second big thing, I believe, is the combination of how many albums were turned in and then ultimately destroyed with the papal, paper drives that occurred roughly uh, 12 to 13 years later for the war effort. So, again, I've, I've always maintained the amounts of pre-World War II paper, uh, programs, magazines, uh, books, cards any type of paper was going into the war effort. So how much of the real history in paper of the game of football, between football cards and actual printed word memorabilia, were destroyed during that time frame? So that's why I've always said anything. I've always, I truly believe anything 1940 and back in professional football or college football is exceptionally rare. Uh, you know, yeah. one can argue there's really not not a, not a great demand for certain colleges' programs. I'll, I'll give them that, but at the same time, I really don't think there's a lot a lot in circulation, even in private collection hands. The Rogers Pete, I've always said, something I've always maintained. I believe a max of 12 cards of each football player mm. actually exists. The three graded or four graded of, of uh, the you know what we have range being the rarest. And there's probably, I, I I can venture to say there's probably six to 12 private football card collections that we will never hear about, we will never see come to the market, and those cards could be nestled in one of those or all of those collections at the same time. And I think yep. that's, you know, I, I I think you hit the nail on the head with regards to your theory on it. And that makes it even more of an exceptional pickup and more of an exceptionally rare card to find. And again, I don't really think there's any warehouse finds of those coming up in the near future. You know what I mean? You're not going to all of a sudden see uh, unearthed two shipping boxes full of Roger Pete albums filled that were sitting somewhere in uh, in an American Pickers-type barn somewhere that uh, are going unkept, if you know what I mean. So, I do agree with your theories, and I and I think that's probably what what is uh, or what's made them so rare in our uh, market today. So that's an incredible pickup, Jeff. I got to congratulate you on it. I mean, it's a just amazing, truly amazing. And again, if you get it's that long... one movie, one movie card, you're pretty I well set. I know. Yeah, have this, have yeah, was have a so
2: long time, long time coming. I got the other three about a decade ago, and and I didn't even know I knew they were rare. I'd never heard of them, but I was you know a decade or so ago I was just getting back into the hobby, and I didn't really yet appreciate how rare they were. But uh, our, our friends at MSB, you know Spano and Becker, John Spano and Andy Becker. I actually had all yep. four of them and they had them in their online store and I missed yep. on the Grange. Yep. It was gone by the time I got there and noticed it, but really John Spano nudged me and he's like, you should pick up these other three. These do not show up very often. And I'm like, exactly. how often? Yep. And he's like, you might never see them again often.
0: So I was exactly. like,
2: okay. So I, I'm glad I picked those up. But then of course now I'm a, I'm a completist. I like to complete sets. Now I'm yep. missing one yep. and it's the Grange. So I counted up. I missed it five times. Um which is a lot for it to even appear. here. Um, and yep. it was uh two different examples. There's three that are known, two different ones. You know, through the last decade. Um I've had at least one shot at and just couldn't couldn't make it happen. Sometimes it was a private thing, mm-hmm. sometimes it was an option. So I'm just happy that mm-hmm. after all those tries, I finally got, finally got it.
1: Excited about that. The first time, first time I heard about Rogers Pete was at a show in the 19, early 1990s. I was going through some notes over the weekend, and um, I was at a – believe it or not, I was at a local show in Hartford, Connecticut at the time, and mm-hmm. uh, a dealer had was explaining to me because he knew I collected only football, he was explaining to me of the four known football cards. He had a couple of the baseball ones and mm-hmm. I had no interest in buying, buying the baseball ones. But he said, if you ever see the football ones, he said, by all means buy them. Cause he said to me, according to my notes, he believed there was less than 50 of each card in existence at that wow. time. And it was 1990, yeah. 1992. We're going 30, going back 30 years on this. So, um, he wow. was right. And, uh, to say the least um, uh, it was a rare, rare cards. And again, if hindsight is, you know, everything. I would have been a million millionaire by now
0: mm-hmm. buying
1: uh, the cards I saw, saw from years ago. I would, I should have pounced on those baseball ones and uh, I could have uh, sold them easily down the road years later at a, at a strong profit. So uh, it's interesting. It's it, it, to me, it's what makes the hobby what it is. I mean, Chasing a very rare card such as that. Uh, we've talked numerous, numerous times <clears throat> about the rarities of of the uh, Mayo sets of 1894. We've talked about the high number rarities of the, the chickle set. Uh, we talked about the rarities of the Shotwells. I mean, you know, there's just not a lot of them in the market, one way or the other. And, uh, you know, again, Mayos. Mm. How many Mayos are in existence? Maybe forty or fifty of each card. How many of the done left? Yeah, maybe ten or fifteen. I really don't know. You know, we'll, we'll never know. Yeah. So uh, it's it, it makes makes for a great collecting journey and great satisfaction. Uh, again, once an advanced collector like you picks up something like that, that that's a great sense of completion and uh, just adds, in my mind, to the the uh both the completeness and the intensity of your collection especially with the pre-world war ii items it's just truly incredible truly incredible to say the least so uh i do congratulate you on your pickup i know you slept better that night once you had it in hand and uh on onward onward to the, to the next uh pickup so af- after that i'm just curious this is off script a little What's your next white whale, if anything? Oh, boy. What's the next white whale? <clears throat> boy, that's a
2: toughie. That is a toughie. What would it be? I and mean, I've been chasing that card for so long. Obviously, we've talked about the Popsville Maroons postcards, I chased yep, for
1: yep. so,
2: so long, got those completed. Uh, there's some early Thorpe things, postcards, and other things that are definitely on my want list that I don't mm-hmm. have because mm-hmm. I'm a big Thorpe fan as well. Um, I'd yep. like yep. to get a few missing pieces few missing. there from okay. from Thorpe. Uh, RPPCs mm-hmm. and things like that. I mean, unfortunately,
0: he doesn't have
2: any football cards from his playing days which is a bummer, right, right, um, right. but, you know, there are baseball and track items and other things, but I'm thinking like early football, you know, Carlisle, early days of this Carlisle, you know, career. There's a few postcards and other things out there that, you know, I've seen once or twice in a decade and I'm like, Oh man, I need those. <laughs> so yeah, those are, yeah. those are definitely on my list for sure. Um, And then just completing, I mean, you know, the oddball sets, you know, even up through the 60s and 70s, some of those oddball sets, those regional sets, those food sets, they are just impossible to finish. And I've got one list in, in some of those sets that I'm still working on. And, you know, it's amazing how hard it is to find some of that material as well, you know.
1: I agree. I agree. I chased it for a long time, and uh I, did. I always, I always used to tell people back in the '80s, I had dealers uh, who would have the proverbial cheese box behind the, ca- the b- behind their um, table, and when no one was looking, they would pull it out and say, "This is all football. Give me five bucks for the box and get out of here." Type of thing. Mm. So uh, it's it's a whole different game today. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I agree with you 110% oddball football insert old insert regional sets, team issues, so on and so forth continues to be somewhat overlooked, but it's overlooked because a lot of individual collectors don't know anything about them. Number one, and number two, they're so difficult to find. And, um, yeah. It's it's amazing. Uh, I use I always use the example, uh, which I don't know if you have any or not. The nineteen fifty nine San uh, Gorgio flip books, uh, which mm-hmm. are not technically yeah. not technically cards, but they're just like a little, for lack of a better term, uh, miniature comic book. Uh, which I have never to this day have seen one in person at a show. I mean, I've seen them online. Mm. I read about him in the Beckett books over the years and so on but I've never i that is one piece I have still yet to see in person just to see what it looked like hmm. so that's that's something that is so to me rare beyond rare and i I know a few collectors who actually have the complete set of them so it's a you know wow. that's another brutal uh set or type card for a lot of collectors trying to find at least one of them uh it's just it's just another amazing piece piece to find if you could ever you know actually come around and find and find one of those so uh and there yeah. and there are also some of the um early police sets that were issued um including the i think it's it's either seventy nine or eighty for the Tampa bay bucks uh from i think it's called Tentadine, uh was the issuer I have never seen a complete set of that. I've seen pieces. I've seen cards of it. I know I have a handful of cards from the set, but I've never seen a complete set of it. It's just, it's just truly amazing, and that, that's rare, rare. So it's you know, half the fun of the chase is always finding something new. Advanced collectors like you and I know what we're looking for, and then it becomes very frustrating to try to end up. You know, after you know 20 years of looking for something, you still don't see it. It, it truly is uh, beyond rare type of thing, and I would think with all the yeah. nationals I've attended, I still haven't seen one of those flip, flip books there. And if I if they were there, I did not see it. I missed it. So it's yep. uh, it, it's interesting to say the to say the least. Uh, the second area yeah. I'd like to talk about talk about tonight um, deals with some travel crates, and I'm going to hand that off to you. Uh, What's your yeah, background?
2: yeah. So another thing we mentioned Thorpe earlier. I, I chase anything Thorpe related. Um, just I've been re- I read about Thorpe just like Grange when I was a kid, and just loved his story and the you know heartbreak of the Olympics and having his medals taken and what a great athlete he was. So when I got into pre-war, I started going after anything Thorpe related. And of course, you know he played in the NFL for quite a while, but he was pretty old by then. But one thing that always fascinated me was this this early NFL team called the Uring Indians. You know that played in '22 and '23. Um, a fascinating story. You know, you um, you know considered the first team to provide halftime entertainment <laughs> is one way to describe yep. it. You know how it all happened was. Jim Thorpe, you know, he knew a lot of people. He spent a lot of time, obviously, in Ohio, where he played with the Bulldogs and and others. And um, he befriended this owner of a dog breeding company called, you know, Lingo Kennels, who ran Kennels, actually, um, Walter Lingo. Mm -hmm. And he used to hunt with Walter and his brother and such, and he had a lot of land. Well, Walter sold these Oorang Airedale Terriers. That was his business. He was a dog breeder. And the thing was is that he got more for a dog than an NFL franchise cost at that time. Like the NFL was yep. asking a hundred bucks for a franchise and he was selling his dogs for hundred and fifty bucks. And he and Thorpe got to talking and he was like I wonder if there's a way I could use football and the NFL to market my dog, my dog business. And he convinced Thorpe to start a a team um, in little tiny LaRue, Ohio. Definitely trivia question, smallest town to ever have an NFL franchise. (laughs) That's pretty clear because apparently it was very small. He convinced Thorpe and he gave Thorpe um, a job. Basically, he said, look, if you'll start a football team, I'll buy a franchise. Um, You know, you can, we'll we'll do an all-Indian team. So get your buddies from Carlisle, Haskell, anywhere you can, you know, you can get, you know, good players and let's have an NFL team. It's going to be mostly travel because we don't have a stadium. Um, my only condition is a couple things. One is that as part of the deal, you help run the kennel and train the dogs and was all into that kind of stuff. He was way Mm -hmm. into that. And that the rest of the players help as well. And that as part of the football game, you know, at halftime, you do some performances, have some Indian acts and performances, get the dogs out there maybe simulate a hunt. You know, they wrestled a bear once in a while. They did all sorts of stuff um, as a way, obviously, to attract people to the games. But also, of course, Walter Lingo was he was trying to sell dogs. And apparently that worked really, really well initially. Um, and and it was cheap marketing for his kennel. Um, right. so, right. you know, there's a great book out there about the Urang Indians, Chris Willis, who I know you've had on the show. Sure. He's wrote great football books. He, he wrote an awesome book on the Oorang Indians, if anybody's interested in it. Um, but what, what uh, back to the original um, you know, question about the crates. So years ago, there was a traveling Native American display that apparently went around the country, you know, talked about Native American heritage. And they – I don't know how they acquired them or if it was affiliated with the Uranian Indians, but they secured a set of travel crates and travel bags. These were wooden Mm -hmm. crates that you filled up with your stuff, and they were put on trains or however else travel was being done that the Orang Indians used to pack up their stuff and um, take it with them when they went on the road. There were also bags and blankets and whatnot. And what is really cool is all of these crates and all of these bags and blankets are all stamped with the Orang Indian logo. Uh, they're stamped um, with the dog logo from from Walter Lingo's um, breeding you know breeding company, and they have the players' names on them, uh, who whose bag it was. So they when they were getting their stuff out of you know however they got their their equipment to where they were going, they knew whose was whose. They also said Jim Thorpe coach or Coach Jim Thorpe on them as well. And these were part of this display, apparently, and apparently they sat in a warehouse for a long time um, until someone, and I don't even know the origin, um, discovered them and brought them to market. And a couple of them sold, you know, Three, four, five years ago, a couple of bags sold at auction, a couple of crates sold at auction. I saw them, I went after them, I didn't get them. I just wanted one, right? I was like, "Oh man, that is so yeah. cool! I would love to have an Oorang Indian, you know, travel crate." And mm-hmm. so missed it, and and you know, been snooping around trying to see if I could find one to pick up. And I just happened to mention to another collector you and I know pretty well um, yeah. and that and I was looking for one of these. I'd love to add it as a display piece, you know, to my collection. And he said, Oh, I know who has those. If you want, here's the person you should contact. and Maybe they'll sell you one. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll, good lead. Thank you. So I called this individual, who's someone else we know pretty well. And, um, mm-hmm. I got a big surprise because he said, you know what? I actually would like to sell all of these, all the bags, all the crates. And I was like, you found your buyer. <laughs>
0: <And> so <laughs> I was able to
2: pick up from him five Orang Indian travel crates. So five wow. of them, different sizes, and seven bags and blankets, all stamped wow. with, you know. Joe Guyen, for instance, you know, Hall of Famer. He was a yep. um, player that played with Thorpe at Carlisle and is in the Hall of Fame. I mean, some of it is his stuff. Uh, some of the other Indians that, you know, go back with Thorpe to his playing days at Carlisle. Uh, just a great find. Boy, I'll tell you, I was over the, over the roof when uh, when we were able to strike a deal
1: and get but those. Because I, those, I, I those, just of one. Those, really. those incredible display pieces and the history of them is just incredible. I mean, you, you know, you appreciate history of the game. Can you imagine Thorpe touching, you know, those crates, the bags, the blankets, so on and so forth? It's just, it's just amazing to, to think about. And I think that's one thing that's overlooked to some collectors. Again, when you're thinking about the history of the early game and how much of that stuff actually survived, I mean, how many creeps mm-hmm. are out there? You know, it's, a, it's another, you know, another question we could throw out there. You know, yeah. how many, how many exist, uh, how many got repainted, re, reused, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, it's just, a, it's an amazing story to to get that many all at once and to collect them. And uh, you know, again, you're the keeper, one of the keepers of the the early game of the history of the NFL, and those are definitely Hall of Fame pieces, to say the least. So, and uh, I'm just curious. I'm curious. Do you know if the Hall of Fame has any of that stuff? I don't think
2: they do. I do. I do not know. I do not know. Yeah. Yeah. I went. I was at the hall in August, and I did meet with the archivist there. And I did reach back out because I wanted to set some time up to go back when I can, you know, dig through some of the archives and and see what they actually do have because they have a lot of stuff. That was made pretty clear. I got a tour of their archive like at a high level and back in the, you know, back wing and the amount of stuff they have is incredible um that's the good yeah, news the yeah. bad news is they can only show just a small fraction of it at any given time so a lot of it's just sitting you know it's just you yeah. know sitting on shelves or in rolling cases right. that they have and you know it's not getting any attention which is kind of a bummer but at least it's being saved right it's it's not right. being destroyed right. Which is which is a good it, thing, but I did, I don't know if they have anything from Oorang. I'd love to find out.
1: Yeah, I, and to me, one of my big criticisms of the Hall of Fame is the National Football League is a multi-billion-dollar business. How much mm. would it take for the NFL to give the Pro Football Hall of Fame an additional X amount of dollars? Listen, you got to expand – if you can't do it in Canton, can you do it in a, you know, an adjacent town? Build a five, six, seven thousand square foot facility, um, mm. you know, up to date and get the stuff out to show and and you know, show the history of the game. And and I'm I'm just in a way, I'm just shocked that the fall the four Hall of Fames and I've been to all but the hockey one you know Cooperstown, Springfield with the basketball mm-hmm. hall of fame, which I, I I went numerous times when I was back in Connecticut, and the football hall of fame, which I've I've been to several times already. I, why why isn't there more displays out? I just don't, I don't understand. I really don't. And again, I really think it should be a priority for the for the leagues to expand everything, especially baseball and football, mm-hmm. uh, to get the. To show the stuff to the public and to the to the historians who want to study it and so on and so forth. I I don't know. I I I know I'm very old school, but but that's definitely uh, definitely something that should be uh, should be looked at, to say the least. Well, that's a great pickup, Jeff. And again, when you mentioned it before, it was totally macro. I can only imagine the history in those pieces that you picked up. Truly amazing. Now that leads us again to Jim Thorpe and uh, a bit about his travels in the 1950s when he went back to Carlisle. Fill us in on that.
0: Yeah.
2: So I got contacted by somebody I'd done a deal with probably five years ago or so. Shows obviously why you want to keep up your relationships in the hobby. He's a dealer and he's up in the PA area and he knows that I collect Thorpe stuff. So he knows If he sees anything related to Thor, you know, at least give me a call and I'll tell him what it is. (laughs) Because a lot of times, you know, people that don't know this stuff like you and I do, they don't know what some of this stuff is and they need advice. And I feel like that's a easy way to, you know, ingratiate myself to people is to give them a little bit of information, right? And so he contacted me. He said he had a set of photos. The back said they were from the early 50s. They had names written on them. And they had Thorpe in them, and and he didn't know anything else about it other than he had this, he, and, and he wanted to know what they were. And I looked at him, and I was like, well, you know, it looks like to me, you know, they're, they're photos from Thorpe coming back to Carlisle. I don't know why he came back, but I bet I can figure it out pretty quick. And he was like, oh, I don't care about yep. that. Just tell me how much they're worth, and if you want them. So I said, well, I do want them, <laughs> number one. And, you know, here's what <laughs> I kind of think they probably were. You know, I mean, that none of them had him in his football attire, obviously. He was 60-some years old or whatever at that point. So, you know, it wasn't. Right. And they were from the 50s. They were type ones. I was pretty sure they were original from looking at them. But right. you know, they a lot of them weren't worth much, right? But, but, right. but actually, one of them was signed by Thorpe. So I was like, well, mm-hmm. that one, now that one's worth something because the Thor, you know, Thor Bottos always worth something. And so we talked yep. a little bit about it. And, and he ended up um, saying, you know what? I appreciate your help. I'll, I'll just, you know, if you give me this much for them, you can have them. So, so I picked them right.
0: up. Right.
2: And then I started digging into it. What I found out was, you know, in, in 1950. You know, Thorpe was named the greatest Pennsylvania athlete in history. That was one of his designations. He was named the best football player in the first half of the 20th century. You know, that was a, you know, a voting contest that he won. And then, of course, he was named the greatest athlete in general in the first half of the 20th century. And all those things happened, you know, in early 1950 when everybody was reflecting sure. about the you know first 50 years, the half century, if you will, the 20th century. And as part of that, yeah. he was um, he was invited to go to Harrisburg, PA, the capital, for a banquet they were going to have to give him this award as PA's greatest athlete. And the people in Carlisle got wind that he was going to be in Pennsylvania, and there was this company in in Carlisle called Carlisle Tire and Rubber <laughs> who wanted to get Thorpe to visit, and they wanted to get Thorpe, you know to come and visit their facility and meet their people and, and do a bunch of, you know, some some testimonial types of things. And so they invited him mm-hmm. to come. Um, I do believe he was paid, um, which doesn't surprise me, right? Thorpe was always, you know, very careful about making sure that, you know, he got a little bit if people were going to use him for yeah, promotional purposes. So he he, yep. he was probably paid to go. Um, which, whatever, but what when I dug into it, what I found out was these photos were all taken during this visit to Carlisle. It had him with executives of the Carlisle Tire and Rubber Company. It had him um, with members of the Rotary Club where I found out he spoke at lunch um, and it had all this information. And the key one was this signed photograph though of Thorpe um was made out to the person who I found out digging around was the vice president and general manager of Carlisle Tire and Rubber. So he clearly oh, Kirk, autographed Kirk. it for this guy who had set this trip up for him. And mm-hmm. now one of the things he pushed while there, you know, at this time was when they were planning to film the um, Jim Thorpe All-American movie that came out you know, a few years later, and right. he was really selling Carlisle on the idea that they should convince Warner Brothers, who was producing the movie, that the premiere of that movie when it came out, the premiere should be in Carlisle. It shouldn't be in New York. It shouldn't be in Hollywood. Right. Right. It should be in Carlisle. And he organized and got Car- you know, Carlisle Tire and Rubber to organize a committee to solicit Warner Brothers to allow them to have the premiere, which in the end, you know, a couple of years later, Carlisle and Oklahoma City shared the premiere is where they ended up. So right. Oklahoma wanted it right. as well, obviously, because, you know, grew up there and that was his home. Mm-hmm. So they were petitioning as well. And and so Warner Brothers decided to have co-premiers the same night. And one of the other Mm -hmm. um, items in this stack of things that I got was the ticket to the dinner um, prior to the premiere. And what I found out later from talking to the person who I got all these from was all of this came out of the estate of that general manager of the Carlisle Tire and Rubber Company. So he had collected this stuff up when Thorpe came initially to visit, and then he still had his ticket mm-hmm. when he went to the premiere dinner that happened right before the premiere a couple years later, and he kept all that in a manila folder. It said it still said Jim Thorpe written on it, and inside he had every picture with the people's names on the back, and he kept this for, gosh, um, 50 some years he lived to be almost yep, 100 yep. it was Jonas Werner oh, he wow. kept this stuff and then when he passed away he got it passed down through the family and then they ultimately sold it at auction and that's where this dealer contacted me got wow. it from
1: wow. so it was just kind of cool
2: right I mean later in life for Thorpe but kind of interesting to read about you know, his journey back to Carlisle and apparently he was very moved by everything that they hadn't forgotten him he
0: he mentioned
2: several times in his speeches that he was so appreciative that people in Carlisle still remembered him and that they thought fondly of him and he was so happy to be back um and he hadn't been back since they said before the war, so I'm thinking thirties yeah. right or, or early forties um and so he was he was quite touched by all the attention he got. And, and everything that transpired, and obviously came back. And he went. He did not. Interestingly, he did not go to Oklahoma for the movie premiere. He spent some time that week in Oklahoma. Made a ceremony for him and whatnot. But then he flew to Carlisle and he attended the premiere in Carlisle.
1: Pretty what an cool. incredible
2: story. Incredible.
0: Such and uh, something know, I knew
2: yeah. nothing about. I'd never heard any of this. Right? I knew he had been. You know, selected as the greatest athlete of the first half of 20th century, but I didn't know any of this. I, I you sure. know, so I started sure. looking into it just to figure out what these
1: photos were, and knew nothing of this story. Amazing, truly amazing. That's that's a great pickup and a great story. And again, more history preserved again. Um, you know, through the auction sale and the dealer having enough common sense to call somebody who collects that stuff and and see you know, if they would have any interest in it, than trying to, you know, throw it on ebay and, and you know, whatever whatever happens, happens type of thing. So that's great. That's great. Another good pickup, Jeff. You are to be congratulated. Well we're we're winding down the show. We got about ten more minutes and the next segment uh, next area I'd like to touch base on something that I think it's close to both of us and many advanced collectors is the constant story, the, the constant question, uh, where's the hobby today and where are we going in, this year in, in 22? Mer- mercifully, some shows are opening up again. Things are looking better as far as shows setting mm-hmm. up. Um, I'm, I'm getting uh, interested down here in setting up at a couple of shows in lower Virginia uh, near the North Carolina line and in Raleigh, North Carolina, a few other places. So I'm getting the itch again to set up and and to move some inventory, talk about the magazine, and so on and so forth. What is, you know, the million-dollar question? Where are we going? What's going on? What's your opinion? Uh, Give us your thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I'm bullish
2: on football stuff. Whether it's cards, memorabilia, whatever it is, I'm bullish. And I think it's, you know, from the earliest days up through the modern stuff, football is hot. Right and and I you know I said from the beginning when I got back in the hobby over a decade ago that I I really felt you said this yourself that football has always been undervalued you know you look at these cards these Grange cards right and he has three four or five cards where the population of each of them is like three or four right and the fact that those sell for a fraction of what the football or the baseball players who have those kinds right. of pop, pops and those kinds of credentials? Hall of Famers sell for just doesn't doesn't smell right to me, and and I always felt like you know pro football was roughly fifty years behind pro baseball in terms of a real league starting and getting off the ground, and that to me just in my simple mind said, well the hobby's probably fifty years behind too, so we should be looking at like. What were baseball prices 50 years ago? And, you know, with the growth of popularity in football and, you know, you know, this idea that when the baby boomers were gone, you know, this whole hobby was going to collapse is, is utterly ridiculous. You know, you see kids today <laughs> doing the same thing that we were doing, right? They're, they're going back to their childhood. Even if it was the, you know, the, the, the junk wax they were, right? Those
0: people right. are back.
2: And they're, like, collecting stuff from their childhood, even though it was a crazy time back then and a lot of people got burned. They're doing the same thing we're doing. And it's just – it's the collector gene. And football is getting hot. I think that, you know, this run-up that happened in COVID, you know, of course it settled back down a little bit. But what I noticed was, you know, vintage did not settle like modern did. Modern dropped.
0: Right, you would expect
2: right. it because it's very speculative. Vintage isn't speculative. You know, vintage is here to stay, and I think every time those speculative periods come, vintage takes a bump and a good bump, and vintage doesn't drop. Or if it drops, it's right. not anywhere near what the rest of it drops, as it should be. Right? This is tried and true right. players who are part of history at this point. And so I'm, I'm bullish on football. I really think as football continues to be the dominant, you know, popular sport, particularly the NFL, and and that people still are going back to what they collected as children, it's helpful. Now I hope that the market for cards makes it affordable again for kids to collect, right? Because that's my only worry is if we continue down this path where there's nothing kids can afford, then that doesn't bode well for thirty, forty years from now, right? Um, so I'm exactly. hoping some of that exactly. gets, gets corrected. That's the only risk I see is is that that you know things aren't available to kids like they were,
1: right? Right, right. And again, I I I agree with 101 percent of what you're saying, and I also believe too. And I've I've said this numerous times. There's different eras of football, and to me, the Mm. golden age of football collecting cards and memorabilia is the 1946 to 1988 period, where Mm. you have you can you can break that down to 1946 to 1972, the last year of series cards collected. 1973, the one series only of tops. So you got mm-hmm. 1973 to ni- 1988, and then you can break it also to 1946 to 1972, and then you have a 33-year period, which are, which kind of freaks me out now when it's it's 33 years now <laughs> from the junk yeah. wax area era of 1989, and believe me, today I, I really don't see many discounted wax boxes of anything, of anything past 19, say 1995 or 1996. So, mm-hmm. it's it's just, you know, really a situation where you have, um, you know, like you're saying, hopefully the, some kids are going to be collecting so the hobby can continue so that when they have the disposable income in their 30s and 40s, they go back to their childhood and, and buy this stuff. Again, I'm still mm-hmm. shocked going into a um, store down here, Big Lots, and I see their little display of cards which is so minimal it's it's mm. literally comical but the wax packs between six well they're not wax packs but they're the packs of football cards are either six dollars or twelve dollars and i'm like holy yeah. mackerel i mean this was this is crazy it's just utterly crazy <laughs> i haven't been i haven't been at a, at a real show lately but i can only imagine what i'm seeing there and, and i've heard i've heard people tell me you know, the ninety and ninety one pro set boxes you couldn't give away at five dollars a box. I going yeah. for fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars and I'm like, You gotta be kidding me. This this is nothing. Yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely nothing. Yep. But again I, I still I I have said for years, I have said since the nineteen eighties when I when I got more serious into collecting older material that football is very undervalued, it's very overlooked. And there's so many other aspects of football memorabilia you can collect, publications, team photos, individual mm-hmm. player team-issued photos. The, the list is endless of what you can collect. And even we're not even looking at helmets, uniforms, and uh, footballs, game used footballs and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I like I said, I agree with you 101%. You know, it's a strong market. Um, margin cards will take a hit. They are up and down all the time, whether we you know whether you agree with it or not. Um, anybody investing in Martin cards, buyer beware. Uh I would not put out a hundred thousand dollars for a Tom Brady, rookie, Tom Brady rookie no matter how good he is. Uh
0: <laughs>
1: but I would if, if I had that save hundred thousand dollars, I would have no problem buying a hundred thousand dollars worth of pre war pre World War Two items. I would have no problem buying three nineteen seventy two 1972 items and back uh, for both collection and investment purposes. So uh, right. to me, you know, there's always going to be a vintage market. 1988, like you, is my cutoff date also, uh, even though I do have a lot of stuff from 89 uh, up, but not to the point where I collected every set. You know, I don't have 60 different 1990, 91, 92 football sets type of situation, so it's, uh, you know, it's it's common sense. And, again, when Caps stopped producing in 2015, that's the last complete uh, multi-team football card set I have in my collection. After that, I just have the Packers police set, which I find out that they eliminated in, um, I think it was 2020 was the last year they did it. So that ended that. So it is what it is. You know, I, I, I bought the packs down here when we moved to kill some time. I pulled up the Packer players, and that's basically all I'm, I'm saving. And it just didn't do a lot for me, holy me, <laughs> compared to yeah, many years ago. Even even in the junk wax era, opening up a lot of junk wax from 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, when I was working in the uh, card shop at the time, so on and so forth. It, it was a much different game, to say the least. Well, we're down in about two minutes. Uh, again, if you're not a subscriber to Gridiron Grace Magazine, what are you waiting for? Check out our website for subscription information, gridirongracemagazine.com. Jeff, it's been a, a great pleasure to have you on yet again uh, on the show. Uh, I truly appreciate your insight. I appreciate um, the things you've done for our hobby in a very short period of time. Uh, giving the hobby a great deal of credibility, a great uh, a great pedigree as far as the historical analysis of many different uh, time frames, uh, teams, uh, pieces of memorabilia cards over the years. You are to be commended for your efforts because they are Herculean, to say the least. Uh, your final thoughts in, uh, in and yeah, so one thing that's common
2: about everything we talked about today is I got all these things through private deals. If people out there are interested in going after rare things, scarce things, et cetera, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of being in the community, sharing what you, you're collecting, what are you telling people what you're looking for, just engaging with the hobby. There's so many collectors that don't do that. And I can tell you, if you engage, if you share, if you write, if you talk, if you network, you talk to people, you're going to have stuff show up at your door. And that's the way you find this stuff, right? It's not showing up at auction uh, a lot of times. It's private deals. And so I encourage everybody listening, get engaged in the hobby. Get involved with the hobby. Join things like VFC, Vintage Football Community, Community. Bob and I are involved in that talk about these things every day. And
1: you'll be surprised when it comes back to you if you do that. I agree 100%. Jeff, thank you for being on. We're almost out of time. Uh, we'll be back hopefully next week with another show. Until that time, thanks for listening. And again, check out our website, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. Thanks, Bob.